Welcome to Season 4, Episode 1 of Felon, a true crime podcast that explores the worst offenders of Australia. For those who have waited around for this return, thank you for your patience and ongoing support. For those who are new to Felon, thank you for taking the time to listen. This episode of Felon may contain disturbing content, including descriptions of violence and coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. Each day bleeds into the next, a swirling haze of dreams and memories. At times they are free, drifting weightless in a sea of bliss, but at times in the search for bliss, instead there is rage. Instead of freedom, the four walls become a cage. The smell and the heat of their chaotic surroundings jars them back to reality, a reality from which they are slowly losing their grip. At times they don't recognise each other, at times they don't recognise themselves. The haze will leave many broken in its wake. Located just over 500 kilometres north of Sydney is the New South Wales coastal city of Coffs Harbour. The Surfside city and its surrounding areas boast a number of tourist attractions. The local beaches offer surfers, swimmers, scuba divers and fishermen ideal conditions to enjoy the ocean. To the west, mountain ranges, rainforests and national parks provide a wide range of opportunities to explore and connect with nature. These landmarks, combined with its subtropical climate, make Coffs Harbour a popular holiday destination, especially to those who use the city as a seaside escape from cooler climates of the south. Due to this reputation amongst tourists, a significant number of hotels and caravan parks have been constructed over the years to cater for a regular population influx during holiday periods. In December of 2012, Michelle Reynolds and her friend Wayne Jones would find themselves in the sunny city of Coffs Harbour. Michelle and Wayne, like many others who visit the city, were on a holiday to enjoy some downtime, but in a motel on the south side of town, their beachside getaway would soon turn into a gruesome tragedy. Michelle Reynolds was born in August of 1978. At the time of her visit to Coffs Harbour, she was 34 years old. From 1998 to 2008, Michelle had given birth to four sons. In 2008, her relationship with her husband, Glenn Winterbottom, had deteriorated beyond repair, and the two separated, with their four sons remaining in the custody of their father. Three years passed, and in 2011, Michelle met a man named Adam Smeadley. Following this meeting, the pair soon began a relationship. In the early days of their involvement with each other, things were smooth between the pair, but in November of 2012, their relationship had escalated to frequent arguments. In light of these ongoing altercations, the two agreed to have a break from their relationship. Michelle moved in with her mother Jeanette, who lived in the central coast suburb of Woiwoi. Unemployed and dejected, Michelle soon slipped into a depressive state. Despite this decline in her mood, Michelle would regularly attend karaoke evenings with members of her family and her friends. Although Michelle had often shared that she was very much against drug use, towards the end of their relationship, Michelle's ex-partner Adam had noticed that Michelle's behaviour seemed to be that of someone who was using. 
Following their separation and the decline in her mental health, friends and family of Michelle had also echoed this sentiment when observing her behaviour at karaoke evenings. It was at one such evening that Michelle would introduce her family to a friend she had recently met named Wayne Jones. In 2012, Wayne Jones was living with a housemate named Matthew Hoare. Matthew had become a mentor to Wayne as he had struggled to free himself from a dependence on prohibited drugs. But despite this assistance from Matthew, it soon became apparent that Wayne was not winning the fight against his addiction. On the 22nd of November, at Michelle's mother's home, Wayne was seen to be in the possession of a range of drugs, including cannabis, various pills, and amphetamines. Not only was Wayne using drugs regularly, but it appeared that he was also dealing. Along with these drugs he had been observed with, he also had with him a range of drug paraphernalia, including a set of digital scales. Those who had suspicions about Michelle's drug use had them confirmed when Michelle was seen obtaining quantities of amphetamines from Wayne. On the same day, Wayne had also collected a number of syringes from a vending machine at a hospital car park. The following day, Friday the 23rd of November, Michelle stopped by her ex-husband's home for an access visit with her sons. Again, she was in the company of Wayne, who she introduced to Glenn as Ozzy. During his interactions with Michelle, Glenn formed the opinion that she was affected by drugs. This opinion was also shared by Michelle's mother Jeanette when Michelle returned home after her visit. On Saturday the 24th of November 2012, Michelle attended a friend's party. Due to sharing mutual friends, her ex-partner Adam Smeadley also attended. Michelle expressed to Adam that she wanted to mend their relationship, but due to their troubled past, Adam was reluctant and told her that he needed more time to reflect on their relationship. Michelle, not wanting to accept that it was over between them, broke down and became very emotional. On Sunday the 25th of November, still distressed from her interaction with Adam, Michelle left her mother's home carrying a bag and her mobile phone. As she walked out the door, she told her mother that she was heading into the town of Woiwoi and that she wouldn't be gone long. But as Jeanette waited for her return, hours had passed into a new day and Michelle still had not come home. Nearly two weeks went by and Michelle had not returned. On some days, her mother had received a number of text messages from her, and their communication revolved around the concern that she had about Michelle using drugs, and for her desire for Michelle to return home. But this conversation soon came to an abrupt end, when Michelle had sternly told her mother to mind her own business. On the 7th of December, Michelle's mother's concerns for her well-being prompted her to report Michelle as a missing person to authorities at the Woiwoi police station. Around 6.30pm on Saturday the 15th of December, police in the coastal city of Coffs Harbour were alerted to reports of a male in his 40s who was in a highly agitated state. While in the grounds of an inner city parkland, he was observed to be searching for something, scratching around in the dirt and leaves behind a public toilet block. While he searched, he was muttering to himself and becoming more and more agitated. He was heard yelling, where the fuck is it? It was here before. The first police on the scene arrived to find the man foaming at the mouth and mumbling incoherently. From these disjointed ramblings, they could make out the name Michelle and that the individual had been with her when they were both set upon by a number of armed attackers wielding shotguns. His claim to police was that Michelle had been shot during an altercation with these men and that only he had escaped. As police struggled to make sense of this interaction, it would not be long before they would discover the details of the tragic event. The downward spiral leading to it had begun almost a week prior. At 5.05pm on Sunday the 9th of December, two days after her mother had reported her missing, Michelle Reynolds was seen in the company of Wayne Jones at a railway station in Newcastle about an hour's drive north from her home in Woiwoi. From Newcastle, they travelled by train to the coastal city of Coffs Harbour. 
arriving there just after 1 o'clock in the morning of Monday the 10th of December. Shortly after their arrival at Coffs Harbour train station, they made their way to the Golden Glow Motel on Grafton Street on the southern side of the city centre. Here the motel manager, a Miss Towler, checked them into room 9. For the next two days, neither Wayne or Michelle were seen leaving the room. On the morning of the 11th of December, Wayne called through to reception and booked the room for two more nights. During this call, he also ordered a large meal from the room service menu. Miss Towler delivered the food to their room. Upon receiving the delivery, Wayne opened the door slightly and kept the security chain on its latch. He was observed to be shirtless and sweating excessively. He unlatched the chain and opened the door just enough to allow Miss Towler to place the meal on a single bed near the door. Later that evening, Miss Towler returned to the room where again she was greeted by Wayne through a slightly open door, again with the security chain attached. Money for another night's stay was passed through the opening and Miss Towler returned to the motel reception. At 4.03pm that afternoon, both Wayne and Michelle were seen at a nearby Woolworth supermarket. Wayne and Michelle were supposed to vacate their room on Wednesday the 12th of December. As the time of their checkout passed, Miss Towler became impatient and called police for assistance. At 5.10pm, police arrived and knocked on the door. Wayne opened the door to police. Again he was shirtless, and again he was sweating heavily. Two police entered their room, where they also observed Michelle. At the request of police, both Wayne and Michelle left the room. Wayne loaded up a large shopping trolley with his possessions in a number of grey plastic shopping bags and stormed off. Michelle followed shortly after. Once empty, Miss Taylor inspected the room. She noticed that it was messy but not damaged, but from somewhere in this mess, she could smell an odd, overpowering odour. Wayne and Michelle travelled south along the Pacific Highway, away from the city centre. After a one and a half kilometre, or nearly one mile walk, they arrived at the Arosa Motel. The motel manager and Mr Shaw noticed that upon their arrival, both Wayne and Michelle looked dishevelled in their appearance. Wayne again was sweating heavily, and Michelle appeared gaunt, tired and stressed. He also noticed that her pupils were enlarged, and she looked and smelled like she hadn't washed for a number of days. Michelle filled out some forms to commence their stay, while Wayne waited outside the reception with his trolley full of belongings. Mr Shaw completed their check-in process and handed them the keys to room number 7. With keys in hand, Michelle and Wayne made their way to the room and settled in for the evening. Around 10.20am on Thursday the 13th of December, Mr Shaw knocked on the door of room number 7. A shirtless Wayne opened the door slightly and peered through the small opening. The security chain remained attached. The room was dark, the blinds still down from the night before. The only sound coming from within was the dull humming of an air conditioner. Mr Shaw asked if he could enter. Wayne unlatched the security chain and opened the door wide enough for him to angle his head and torso through the space. Mr Shaw asked Wayne how long they intended to stay at the motel. After a short discussion, Wayne walked with Mr Shaw to reception and paid for another night. Wayne declined the offer for room service so the cleaner didn't tend to his and Michelle's room, choosing rather to leave a clean set of towels and other general supplies outside the front door. At 9.55am the following morning, Wayne called through to reception and stated that he would like to pay for another night and that he would come into the office shortly to settle the bill. He attended the office briefly and after paying by card, he returned to the room. Again, Wayne declined the offer for room service and so supplies were again left at the front door. The following day, Saturday the 15th of December, at 10.15am, Mr Shaw phoned through to room 7 and spoke to Wayne. He reminded him that if he required to stay another night, he would need to pay at reception. Wayne agreed and made his way over to meet Mr Shaw. During their conversation, Wayne stated that he and Michelle were really hungry and asked if Mr Shaw could arrange the delivery of some food to their room. 
Mr. Shaw called a pizza delivery service and handed the phone to Wayne. At 11.15am, the pizza delivery driver arrived and knocked on Wayne and Michelle's door. Wayne opened the door wide enough to allow him to pass the order of three pizzas, a garlic bread, and a soft drink through the opening. During their brief exchange, the young pizza delivery driver noticed that Wayne seemed agitated and that his eyes were darting side to side erratically. Throughout that same morning, Wayne attempted to call a number of people known to him, requesting that they come to Coffs Harbour and pick him up. Among these contacts was Wayne's roommate and mentor, Matthew Hoare. At 10.20am that same morning, following his interaction with Mr Shaw in the reception, Matthew Hoare had a missed call from Wayne. That afternoon, at 1.12pm, Matthew returned his call. Wayne, who was eagerly waiting for his reply, pleaded with him, stating, I'm not travelling well. Can you come and get me? I'm in Coffs Harbour. But Matthew declined this request, to which Wayne continued to plead, Please, I need you to come get me. Someone is after me. As an added incentive, he offered Matthew several thousand dollars if he would come to his aid. Again, Matthew declined, adding the advice for Wayne to get to a meeting, referring to a support meeting for those who are struggling with drug addiction. A few hours passed, and at around 5pm, Wayne contacted a local taxi company with the request to be picked up from the Arosa Motel. Taxi driver Jeffrey Allen took the call and made his way south out of town towards the motel. Upon his arrival, he was greeted at the door by Wayne, who asked for his assistance in moving his luggage. Jeffrey agreed, and after placing Wayne's luggage in the boot, the two jumped in the car, and following the directions of Wayne, they travelled south on the Pacific Highway towards the nearby township of Bonville, about a 15 minute drive away. Wayne guided Jeffrey to a number of houses that were listed for sale at various locations in the forest area surrounding Bonville. As they were travelling along a section of bushland on Butler's Road, Wayne requested that Jeffrey pull the car over, stating that he needed to take a toilet stop. Jeffrey agreed and walked off to smoke a cigarette while Wayne relieved himself. Jeffrey finished his cigarette and Wayne returned to the car. Once back in the car, Wayne told Jeffrey that he had just realised he had left a bag back at the Arosa Motel and requested that he drive him back there to collect it. They made the 15 minute drive back to the motel and Jeffrey parked his taxi near room 7. Wayne left the taxi and entered the room. While Wayne rummaged around, Mr Shaw, the motel manager, heard a number of banging sounds coming from the room and he quickly made his way over to inspect the source of the sound. As he approached Wayne and Michelle's room, he saw Wayne carrying a motel bedsheet with a number of his belongings bundled inside it. Stopping Wayne before he could make it to the taxi, Mr Shaw grabbed a corner of the sheet and started to pull it from Wayne in an attempt to prevent him from taking it with him. A verbal exchange between Mr. Shaw and Wayne became heated, and Mr. Shaw insisted that he was not taking the bedsheet with him. It was noted that Wayne was getting agitated and speaking erratically and with a very high-pitched voice. Mr. Shaw agreed to let Wayne empty the items wrapped in the sheet into the taxi. Wayne spilled the contents into the empty boot. This consisted of small items of rubbish, random personal effects, and a scattering of yellow pieces of foam, similar to that of the motel bed mattresses. In seeing this foam, Mr. Shaw made his way over to room 7 to inspect it before Wayne left. He observed the room to be in a state of chaos. The bathroom was flooded. A picture that had been hanging above the bed was smashed and lying on the ground. The base of the bed was ripped. Food and rubbish were strewn across the floor and there were dark patches of wet carpet. There was a sickly sweet overpowering smell that Mr. Shaw could only describe as what he thought to be some sort of bodily fluid. Now in a state of frustration, Mr. Shaw made his way back to the waiting taxi and confronted Wayne about the shocking state of the room. Wayne begged him not to call the police and told him that he would be back in 30 minutes to clean up his mess and pay for the damages. And now panicked and agitated Wayne left the motel in the taxi. Mr. Shaw returned to the reception and called the police. This call was logged by police at 6.25pm. Local uniformed police officers were sent to attend the motel. The station was also informed that Wayne had requested the taxi driver to drive him to Brelsford Park, located near the centre of Coffs Harbour. 
Jeffrey noticed that Wayne's behaviour had become increasingly erratic, he was visibly agitated, and his movements were becoming jerky and unnatural. As the taxi pulled up near the toilet block of Brelsford Park, Jeffrey informed Wayne that his fare was over, and due to his behaviour, he activated an emergency alert button. Both Wayne and Jeffrey exited the vehicle. Wayne quickly ran to an area behind a toilet block and started digging in the dirt and leaves, becoming more and more frustrated. He began pacing around and throwing random items in the bushes. He returned to the taxi where he yelled at Jeffrey, Where the fuck is it? It was here before. Uniformed police arrived at Brelsford Park. As they approached Wayne, they noted that he was pacing back and forth, waving his arms around and rubbing his hands together. As they drew nearer, they could see that he was covered in scabs and open wounds. A red substance was on his lips and teeth, and his eyes were wide open. It appeared that he was having trouble focusing, and his speech was slurred to the point that he was mostly incoherent. Around the same time that police were approaching Wayne at the park, his room at a Rosa Motel was also being searched. It was here, among the mess and chaos, that police observed blood spattered across the walls. For the police confronting Wayne at the park, they were able to decipher a story that Wayne claimed that he and a friend named Michelle were attacked by a group of people with shotguns. He also claimed that during this attack, tragically Michelle had been killed and their attackers had disposed of her body. Due to Wayne's state of mind and his erratic behaviour, which police assumed was related to drug use, they were reluctant to accept his account of the events and he was taken into custody with the suspicion that Michelle had come to harm at his hands. The fact that they were unable to locate her made them very concerned for her well-being. During his ramblings, Wayne was foaming at the mouth. He told police that he had taken a bad mix of cocaine. When searched, Wayne's possessions in the taxi included food scraps, containers full of some sort of paste, a backpack, a suitcase, phone chargers and reusable plastic bags which contained a white powdery residue. A total of 90 grams of methamphetamine was located in various containers. At 10.30 that night, Wayne was spoken to by detectives. He was now very animated, scratching sores on his arms, moving his arms around and pacing back and forth. Because of this behaviour and his obviously affected mental state, the detectives felt that it was not an appropriate time to conduct a formal interview. In discussions with Jeffrey Allen, the taxi driver, police determined that on his first arrival at motel, he'd assisted Wayne in moving his luggage from his room to the boot of his taxi. Wayne's luggage wasn't a suitcase, but instead a large bundle of possessions wrapped inside a bedsheet. Upon his return to the motel and following Wayne's altercation with the motel manager, he had emptied the contents of a second sheet into the boot of the car, but the original bundle was no longer in the car. Investigations continued into the next day. Wayne and Michelle's room was declared a crime scene, and as Wayne remained in custody, a forensic investigation of the motel commenced. At 1.45pm on Sunday the 16th of December, inside a large green dumpster at the rear of the motel, police located a cardboard box. Inside the box were two bedsheets that had been stained by a significant amount of blood. As police continued their interview with Jeffrey Allen, he informed them that he had driven Wayne to a location in a forest area of Bonville along Butler's Road. Escorted by police, Jeffrey revisited the locations that he'd been to with Wayne, and in particular, a stretch of road where Wayne had stopped to relieve himself. It was near this location at 4.39pm where police would discover the disturbing contents of Wayne's discarded luggage. Inside a dishevelled cocoon of fabric was the battered body of Michelle Reynolds. While taxi driver Jeffrey Allen had walked away to smoke a cigarette during Wayne's so-called toilet stop, Wayne had discarded his first load of luggage in an attempt to cover his crime. Flattened grass near the road indicated that Michelle's body had been dragged a short distance into the scrub. At 9.30am on the 19th of December, a post-mortem of Michelle's body was conducted. 
Conclusions of the examination were hindered by blood pooling in the lowest points and decomposition, but there were significant clues that aided the forensic pathologist in determining a cause of death. A length of torn cloth had been looped around Michelle's neck three times, and a single knot had been tied at the back of her head. Two more lengths of cloth were also used to bind her hands and ankles. Her hands and ankles were then joined behind her back using another piece of cloth. Michelle had multiple lacerations on her face, a broken nose, and signs of significant blunt force trauma to the head. A circular abrasion to her abdomen was determined to be a chemical burn from a corrosive being poured on her body. Similar burns were also found on her arms. It was concluded that these brutal injuries had been sustained prior to her death and that the ultimate cause of her death was asphyxiation, either by forceful suffocation or by strangulation with the cloth. When questioned, Wayne offered little explanation for his actions. His initial statements to police ranged from ramblings of gangs armed with shotguns to even accusing the taxi driver of murdering Michelle. But Wayne's final account was that he had no memory of what had happened to Michelle and even his arrest. He claimed that his last recollection was taking a drug he believed to be a synthetic cocaine and experiencing a hallucination that he was trapped in a pit of snakes. When he finally came to, he was in a prison in Sydney, and despite being informed of the events that occurred in Coffs Harbour, he refused to accept responsibility for his actions. Whether his account was fact or fiction, his involvement in the fate of Michelle Reynolds was obvious, and her family were left in a state of shock at the senseless and brutal nature of her death. 7th of December, uh, Michelle Reynolds was reported missing to police from Bridgeton Water, local area command on the central coast. Uh, on Saturday evening, a 41-year-old man from Yamina Beach was arrested in Coffs Harbour in relation to other matters. Following that arrest, police acting on other information went to a motel on the Pacific Highway at Coffs Harbour where a crime scene was established. Uh, further evidence was obtained and led police to search bushland uh, off Butler's Road at Bonville. Uh, where the body of Miss Reynolds was located late yesterday afternoon. We have established that they are known to each other, they are associates, but uh, as to the nature of any relationship, we can't uh, comment on that further at this time. Police have been in touch with Miss Reynolds' family and they are aware that she has passed away and uh, we'll be dealing with their, them on an ongoing basis, obviously. As Wayne stood trial for the murder of Michelle, Further details of the callousness of Wayne's actions would be revealed when it was determined that Michelle's death had occurred prior to Wayne receiving the pizza delivery. This disregard for human life was noted by Judge Richard Button and he stated, The offender was content to order a large amount of takeaway food and he was content to consume it in a small motel room in which no more than a few meters away was the body of a woman whom he had bashed and thereafter strangled to death ghastliness of that image requires no elaboration by me. At the conclusion of his trial, Wayne Jones was found guilty of the murder of Michelle and also supplying a prohibited drug. For these offences, he was sentenced to a total of 27 years and 9 months, with a non-parole period of 20 years and 9 months. The first date that he would be eligible for release would be the 14th of September, 2033. During the sentencing remarks, the judge expressed sympathy for Michelle's family, stating, Michelle Reynolds, was a much-loved mother, daughter, partner, sister, family member, and friend. Her mother has spoken of her daughter's love for her children and her enjoyment of the simple pleasures of life, such as singing with friends and family at karaoke evenings. The deep pain of many is worsened by their inability to understand the motivation for this murder, a question that may never be answered. To rob salt in the emotional wounds of Michelle's loved ones, a new revelation would emerge about Wayne Jones, which would leave them questioning as to why such a man would be free to roam in society. 
At the age of 12, Wayne started using cannabis. This soon turned into abusing alcohol, amphetamines, LSD, and cocaine. During high school, he experienced learning difficulties and was unable to keep up academically, which led him to drop out in year 10, choosing rather to work as a labourer. In 1993, at the age of 21, Wayne was first charged with possession of a prohibited drug, and in December of 1994, he was sentenced for armed robbery and placed on a three-year good behaviour bond, as well as being ordered to undergo psychiatric treatment. By the age of 23, he was a regular heroin user. In March of 1996, he was again convicted of possessing a prohibited drug and received a fine. In May of 2001, he was again fined for possessing a prohibited drug and cultivating a prohibited plant. More significantly, on that same occasion, he received a suspended sentence of 12 months for owning a firearm. As part of the conditions of this sentence, he was required to attend drug and alcohol counselling. In early 2003, still in the grips of substance abuse, Wayne was charged with inflicting grievous bodily harm with intent to do so. The details of this incident offered an insight into the violence that Wayne was capable of. During an altercation with a lady in a shopping centre car park, Wayne used a motor vehicle club lock to repeatedly strike a woman who was already on the ground and defenceless. The injuries inflicted were so severe that the whole left side of her face was left completely smashed in. For this offence, Wayne was sentenced to seven years and six months with a non-parole period of four years and six months. Upon his release from prison in 2010, Wayne was fined for contravening an apprehended violence order. In 2011, Wayne was again found to be in the possession of prohibited drugs, but in a strange twist, these charges would be mysteriously dropped, as New South Wales police found themselves in a compromised position. This controversial decision would come back to haunt not only the New South Wales police force, but would leave the family of Michelle Reynolds questioning the justice system and forever wondering whether she could have been spared from ever crossing paths with Wayne Jones in the first place. On the evening of the 4th of April 2011, Senior Constable Glenn Roberts and his partner were patrolling the inner city suburb of Kings Cross, a well-known red light district. During their patrol, Senior Constable Roberts and his colleague observed a rough-looking man in the company of three younger women in a situation that made them suspicious that underage prostitution was occurring. As the two officers approached the man, he put both of his hands down the front of his pants and removed a plastic item. This item was then seen to be transferred to one of the young ladies he was standing with, who quickly stuffed it down the front of her shorts. Both were detained, and backup was called with a request for a female officer who would be able to conduct a body search of the young lady. A search located the package in question. When opened, it was found to contain smaller packages of heroin, ice, speed, and cannabis. Following this discovery, both were taken into custody for questioning. But at the station, what seemed to be a run-of-the-mill drug possession arrest would soon become an even bigger story. During an interview, the 21-year-old woman revealed that she had been in contact with detectives based in Newcastle, a coastal city two hours north of Sydney. During her contact with these detectives, she had been providing them with information regarding the man that she had just been arrested with. She went on to share that he was involved in a major drug supply chain and a member of the Nomads. In her time with him, she had observed them in possession of multiple pounds of drugs in silver cases. The evening prior to their arrest, the man had rounded her up with two other teenage girls. They had sold drugs at a service station. He had bashed her and then forced her to drive to Sydney to engage in prostitution. Even more disturbing, she shared that he had forced her to have sex with him and then made her do two jobs referring to prostitution, with the threat that he would again force himself on her if she refused. This act was repeated on at least one of the other girls that she was with that night. She also recounted the time that she had overdosed on heroin and that this man had abandoned her. He would also beat her frequently. As the information about this individual was revealed, it soon became apparent why he was under the watchful eye of the Newcastle detectives. The name of this individual was Wayne Jones.
Wayne was still on parole for the attack on the woman with the car lock when he was arrested that night. With this violation and the nature of the offence, the expectation was that he would be facing some serious jail time. Following his arrest, he was served with three drug possession charges, one count of dealing with suspected proceeds of crime, and an additional charge of supply of an indictable quantity of drugs, which potentially could mean a maximum of 15 years in prison. These new charges led to Wayne's parole being revoked and returning to jail. But this would not be for long. Six months later, in October of 2011, just over a year before meeting Michelle Reynolds, all charges against Wayne Jones were mysteriously dropped and he became a free man. The following month, in November of 2011, Wayne was charged with having a knife in a public place, dealing with the proceeds of crime, possessing identity information in order to commit an indictable offence, and driving while disqualified. Again, Wayne avoided jail time and instead was placed on good behaviour bonds. On the 10th of October 2012, one more significant charge would be laid, but this time it would not be against Wayne Jones. In a bizarre twist, Senior Constable Glenn Roberts, the arresting officer in the King's Cross incident, would be charged with fabricating false evidence. This charge was in relation to the arrest of Wayne and the 21-year-old woman for drug possession. According to Fairfax Media, the New South Wales Police Force made a concerted effort to prosecute and jail Senior Constable Roberts for the alleged offence. Critical evidence later emerged to prove his innocence and confirmed that the charges he had laid against Wayne Jones were valid, but this evidence was not immediately available. Rather, it was discovered that the force itself had withheld it in an attempt to discredit Roberts. With this evidence made available, Senior Constable Roberts' honesty was confirmed and the case against him was dismissed. But being cleared of any wrongdoings would be a bittersweet moment. While in court, as the documents regarding the charge against Wayne Jones were accessed, a more recent charge against Wayne would surface, that being for the murder of Michelle Reynolds in a motel in Coffs Harbour. Senior Constable Roberts stood in disbelief. In a following media interview, he reflected on hearing this disturbing news, stating, The man whom I had charged, who should have still been inside, and for whom I was now in court, had killed someone, I was absolutely devastated. In trying to balance the scales of justice, Senior Constable Roberts submitted a request for an investigation to determine why he was charged in the first place and also why the charges against Wayne Jones were dropped, in turn freeing him from an expected and much-deserved jail sentence. To this request, the New South Wales Police Force's Professional Standards Command replied by saying all matters had been declined for further investigation. Glenn Winterbottom, the ex-husband of Michelle and father of her four children, has struggled to grasp how such a miscarriage of justice could have ever occurred. Her brutal death, uh, no one in this world should, should go through that. I mean, and then as he was getting sentenced, the, the smile on his face, yeah, it boiled me right up, I, yeah. And then to get 20 years for taking a mother's life of four kids was an absolute joke. The reasons why he got let out, why? <laughs> yeah, there's a big conspiracy there. For a monster like that to be let out after all them charges, it doesn't make sense. He shouldn't have been out. If he, if he wasn't out, then Michelle would probably still be alive, definitely. With the rejection of his request for an investigation, Senior Constable Roberts attempted to seek answers under freedom of information laws. Again, his request was denied, citing a substantial adverse effect on the agency's personnel management function. It seems that for Senior Constable Roberts and the family and friends of Michelle Reynolds, an explanation will not be forthcoming. To this day, all Senior Constable Roberts can do is speculate as to why a man like Wayne Jones was freed by someone in the New South Wales Police Force and why he himself would end up in the firing line. 
But with this speculation aside, he still carries with him the significance of what could have been a life-altering decision in arresting Wayne Jones that night in King's Cross. Faced with the possibility of how events may have transpired if he had not made the arrest, Senior Constable Glenn Roberts has reflected. I'm still plagued by the thought that I may have saved the lives of those three young girls, but I cost another woman hers. Michelle was a very lovable person. Um, she would literally take a shirt off, off her back for, to help you out any way she could. Um, she really loved her kids. Now, even though um, circumstances, we uh, split up, but, you know, I still loved her. If you'd like to stay in the loop with all things Felon, there's the main Felon page on Facebook. There is also the chat group on Facebook called Friends of Felon. And you can find Felon on Instagram and Twitter under the handle Felon True Crime. Thanks for listening.